Hello, folks. Welcome to the 16th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of sources. Today, we'll be looking at the second part of the Bhagavad Gita, just the second chapter that is entitled Contents of the Gita Summarized. And we will be skipping history today because I have, I'm all historyed out. I got, I got to this uh, continuation at the end of my research this month and I was just like, I need a break. So we will get back to Indian history with the history of Vedic India uh, next month uh, when we cover Karma Yoga, which is the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself. Where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. I feel kind of weird just getting right into this without talking about all of the history uh, leading up to it, but that's kind of one of the good things about holy texts is unlike myths and folktales, they're a little less reliant on the specific cultural tendencies of a people, and they often try to generalize to larger, more broad human concepts. So in a way, I feel a little less uh, held by history when I am viewing holy texts and reading holy texts, such as the Bhagavad Gita. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't criticize them. Hmm, heck no. We will be criticizing lots of holy texts, and we're just starting with the Bhagavad Gita. Don't worry, we'll get to different places. I know I said last episode that I was going to switch up how I was structuring me telling this. However... Oddly, chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita changes its structure slightly. There are more direct quotes that are then followed by a purport, so there will be like multiple different lines and then a purport. Unlike the first chapter where it was line, purport, line, purport, line, line, purport. So it'll be a little easier to follow along, and we can still get the exact flow of the Bhagavad Gita without making it boring. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Chapter 2 Contents of the Gita Summarized 1. Sanjaya said, Seeing Arjuna full of compassion and very sorrowful, his eyes brimming with tears, 
Madhusudana Krishna spoke the following words. 2. The Supreme Personality of Godhead said, My dear Arjuna, how have these impurities come upon you? They are not at all befitting a man who knows the progressive values of life. They lead not to higher planets, but to infamy. PURPORT The Sanskrit word Bhagavan is explained by the great authority of Parasara Muni, the father of Vyasadeva. The supreme personality who possesses all riches, entire strength, entire fame, entire beauty, entire knowledge, and entire renunciation is called Bhagavan. There are many persons who are very rich, very powerful, very beautiful, very famous, very learned, and very much detached, but no one can claim that he is possessor of all these opulences entirely. Such a claim is applicable to Krishna only, and as such he is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. No living entity, including Brahma, Lord Shiva, or even Narayana, can possess opulences as fully as Krishna. By analytical study of such possessions, it is concluded in the Brahma Samhita by Lord Brahma himself that Lord Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. No one is equal to or above him. He is the primeval Lord, or Bhagavan, known as Govinda, and he is the supreme cause of all causes. It is stated as follows. There are many personalities possessing the qualities of Bhagavan, but Krishna is supreme because none can excel him. He is the supreme person, and his body is eternal, full of knowledge and bliss. He is the primeval Lord Govinda and the cause of all causes. In the Bhagavatam also there is a list of many incarnations of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but Krishna is described therein as the original personality from whom many, many incarnations and personalities of Godhead expand. It is stated in this way, All the lists of incarnations of Godhead submitted herewith are either planary extensions or parts of the planary expansions of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead himself. Therefore, Krishna is the original Supreme Personality of Godhead, the Absolute Truth, the source of both Supersoul and the impersonal Brahman. In the presence of the Supreme Person, Arjuna's lamentation for his kinsmen is certainly unbecoming, and therefore Krishna expressed his surprise with the word Kuta, wherefrom. Such unmanly sentiments were never expected from a person belonging to the civilized class of men known as Aryans. The word Aryan is applicable to persons who know the value of life and have a civilization based on spiritual realization. Persons who are led by the material conception of life do not know that the aim of life is realization of the absolute truth, Vishnu, or Bhagavan. Some persons are captivated by the external features of the material world, and therefore they do not know what liberation is. Persons who have no knowledge of liberation from material bondage are called non-Aryans. Arjuna was trying to deviate from his prescribed duties, declining to fight, although he was a kasatriya, or warrior. This act of cowardice is described as befitting the non-Aryans, 
Such deviation from duty does not help one in the progress of spiritual life, nor does it even give one the opportunity to become famous in this world. Lord Krishna did not approve of the so-called compassion of Arjuna for his kinsmen. Now this is odd because the purports in the previous chapter are all talking about how, how important it was that Arjuna have this moment of compassion, how it was telling of his godliness or closeness to Krishna. And it's odd that Krishna should hate upon this, don't you think? It's also quite telling that the gender binary is at full force here, as in a misogynistic sense, where all things come from a man. Krishna is defined as a he here, and thus it is seen that all things come from man. However, this is not the case. The world was not created by men and will never have been created by men. It is created, or at least civilization is created, by a syncretic mixture of male, female, intersex, non-binary, and all sorts of different gender, as well as animals. Like, everything affects the way our civilizations work. And so it's very odd that we view this one thing as absolute truth. Now, I don't want to diminish the feeling of experiencing oneness, because this is what this is really talking about here. The absolute truth, the Vishnu, the Bhagavan, it's the knowledge that you cannot possess those things that are beyond you, that only Krishna can possess, all of them at the same time. It is the awareness of our flaws, and I think that is really a very powerful message, and a very good one. It would be a much better world to live in if people accepted that they weren't perfect at everything. You know how many times I have sat on the sidelines while someone badgers about saying, oh, do this, do that, and then I raise my hand and I say, how about this? And suddenly it's like, oh, you know, oh, that's what we should have been doing. And it's not always just me, you know, sometimes it's another person, or sometimes it's as something in the environment that everyone sees, and it's a communal realization. I just use myself as an example to describe this phenomena. We, as people, have a tendency to ascribe truth to an absolute. I mean, quite literally, it says absolute truth here. And I think that that's kind of not true in a, in a weird roundabout way. An absolute truth isn't true. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Sri Krishna exists in the space beyond spaces, the place beyond truth, because that is the only place where absolute truth can exist when there is no sense of lies at all. And here's the problem. Truth and lies are defined by each other, uh, not by some external factor, unless we're talking about science, which does have certain truths, but cannot tell us certain things. Like, science cannot tell us why people made civilization, for instance. It cannot give us that truth. It never will. However, we can look to other sources. We can look to other places, and maybe we can truly learn about that. But we will never have absolute truth. I think I mentioned this earlier, or maybe it was just to a friend recently. However, I have this memory from when I was in college, this uh, flutist, uh, Native American flutist. I can't remember from what uh, tribes he hailed from, but he, uh, he came to my university and he played with uh, one of the bands that was being uh, helped out by the university. It's a long story. They were like a string band. They did violins and stuff. When I saw this man play, it just took my breath away. But 
It was what he said in a short interlude that has stayed with me forever. He said, well, he took his hands. He, he walked all the way up to the microphone. He looked out across the crowd, and there was this moment of silence, this moment of waiting. And then he took his hands, and he, he made almost an egg shape close to his chest. And he said, this is how much I know. And then he brought his hands out a little bit, and he said, this is how much the wisest person I've ever met knows. And then he reached his hands outstretched to his sides as far as his arms could reach out. And he smiled and he said, and this is how much there is to know in the universe. And then the man played music and it was beautiful. Ah, that, that experience shall never leave me of seeing that and knowing that. For that in itself is knowledge. Knowing that one does not know everything, that one has flaws, that one must rely on others sometimes to fill in those gaps of knowledge. And I think that this section is saying that, at least the purport is. The actual words themselves are really more a statement about tradition, again, as we talked a lot about tradition in the last episode of the Bhagavad Gita. In this case, this tradition is that of warriorship and uh, to not follow a tradition is seen as bad. Now, this is a much more negative idea in my uh, worldview. I don't think that we should just blindly follow tradition. I think that we should sometimes form new traditions or accept that not following tradition is an acceptable way of, of being. I think that Arjuna's compassion here, eh, it's a little more important than tradition. Three, O son of Pritha, do not yield to this degrading impotence. It does not become you. Give up such petty weakness of heart and arise, O chastiser of the enemy. Arjuna said, O killer of Madhu, Krishna, how can I counteract with arrows in battle personalities like Bhishma and Dronya, who are worthy of my worship, O killer of enemies? 5. It is better to live in this world by begging than to live at the cost of the lives of great souls who are my teachers. Even though they are avaricious, they are nonetheless superiors. If they are killed, our spoils will be tainted with blood. 6. Nor do we know which is better, conquering them or being conquered by them. The sons of Dhartarastra, whom, if we killed, we should not care to live, are now standing before us on this battlefield. Purport. Arjuna became perplexed in this connection, not knowing whether he should execute the fighting with the risk of committing unnecessary violence, although it is the duty of the Kasatriyas, or whether he should not and prefer instead to live by begging. If he did not conquer the enemy, begging would be the only means left for his living. There was no certainty of victory because either side might emerge victorious. Well, that's a bit odd. Eh? The, what, wasn't the uh, sounding of the transcendent conch shells supposed to indicate that Arjuna's side would win, as well as the presence of Sri Krishna? That was in the first. Uh, huh, odd. It seems like the purport is, to some extent, uh, contradicting itself. Even if there were victory awaiting them because their cause was justified, still, if the sons of Dhartarashtra should die in battle, it would be very difficult to live in their absence. Under the circumstances, that would be another kind of defeat. 
All these considerations by Arjuna definitely prove that he was not only a great devotee of the Lord, but was also highly enlightened and had complete control over his mind and senses. His desire to live by begging, although he was born in the royal household, is another sign of detachment. He was fully in the quality of forbearance, as all these qualities combined with his faith in the words of instruction of Sri Krishna, his spiritual master, give evidence. It is concluded that Arjuna was quite fit for liberation. Unless the senses are controlled, there is no chance of elevation to the platform of knowledge, and without knowledge and devotion there is no chance of liberation. Arjuna was competent in all these attributes, over and above his enormous attributes in his material relationships. I like some of this. I like the idea that our material world, our uh, money, our relationships with people, they are temporary, and they don't necessarily represent us as a whole. And I like the chicken-and-the-egg paradox of requiring knowledge uh, to become liberated, but also requiring liberation for knowledge. I think this is very true. Uh, perhaps liberation is the best place to start. It is so easy to let go, but also so hard. Uh, but I think it's harder to learn if one has not let go at all. We must let go of our predisposed beliefs and our uh, presuppositions about the way the world functions, uh, because the world functions in the way that it does now. And people in the past, or even people in the present, might not understand how it is actually working, how people are going about and respecting each other or not respecting each other. Maybe we do need more compassion. Maybe that's what really this myth is about, minus all the purports. It's the idea that maybe Sri Krishna's way needs to be replaced with a way of Arjuna, a way of compassion. Or, of course, not, because that's certainly not what the purports are saying. However, to me, in this moment, it kind of feels like that. Uh, however, that would probably be a deep blasphemy, so I shall not suggest the thing. Uh, Sri Krishna, of course, in this context, is still the supreme personality of Godhead, uh, effectively the same as Adonai would be in Judaism. 7. Now I am confused about duty and have lost all composure because of weakness. In this condition, I am asking you, Sri Krishna, to tell me clearly what is best for me. Now I am your disciple and a soul surrendered unto you. Please instruct me. Purport. By nature's own way, the complete system of material activities is a source of perplexity for everyone. In every step there is perplexity, and it behooves one, therefore, to approach the bona fide spiritual master who can give one the proper guidance for executing the purpose of life. All Vedic literatures advise us to approach a bona fide spiritual master to get free from the perplexities of life which happen without our desire. They appear like a forest fire, which takes place without being set by anyone. Similarly, the world situation is such that perplexities of life automatically appear, without our wanting such confusion. Nobody wants fire, and yet it takes place still, and we are perplexed. The Vedic wisdom, therefore, advises that in order to solve the perplexities of life and to understand the science of the solution, one must approach a spiritual master who is in the disciplic succession. A person with a bona fide spiritual master is supposed to know everything. One should not, therefore, remain in material perplexities, but should approach such a teacher. 
This is the purport of this verse. But who is the man in material perplexities? It is he who does not understand the problems of life. In the Garga Upanishad, this is described as follows. He is a miserly man who does not solve the problems of life as a human and who thus quits the world like the tats and dogs, without understanding the science of self-realization. He is called a miserly man. This human form of life is a most valuable asset for the living entity who can utilize it to solve the problems of life. Therefore, one who does not utilize this opportunity is a miser. I agree with that quite a, quite a great deal. On the other hand, there is the Brahmana, or he who is intelligent enough to utilize this body for solving all the problems of life. The Kripanyas, or miserly persons, waste their time in being overly affectionate for family, society, country, etc. in the material conception of life. One is often attached to family life, to wife, children, and other members on the basis of quote-unquote skin disease. The Kripanas think that they are able to protect their family members from death, or the Kripana thinks that his family or society can save him from death. Such family attachment can be found even in the lower animals, who also take care of children. Being intelligent, Arjuna could understand that his affection for family members and his wish to protect them from death were the causes of his perplexities. Although he could understand that his duty to fight was awaiting him, still, on account of miserly weakness, he could not discharge the duty. He is therefore asking Lord Krishna, the supreme spiritual master, to make a definite solution. He offers himself to Krishna as a disciple. He wants to stop friendly talks. Talks between the master and disciple are serious, and now Arjuna wants to talk very seriously before the recognized spiritual master. Krishna is therefore the original spiritual master in the science of Bhagavad Gita, and Arjuna is the original disciple in understanding the Gita. How Arjuna understands Bhagavad Gita is stated in the Gita itself, and yet foolish mundane scholars explain that one need not submit to Krishna as a person, but to the unborn within Krishna. Wait, hold it. And yet foolish mundane scholars explain that one need not submit to Krishna as a person, but to the unborn within Krishna. There is no difference between Krishna's within and without, and one who has no sense of his understanding is the greatest fool, the greatest pretender. Okay, it's time to start talking about the great metaphor. The metaphor that really hasn't been enumerated by many people, but I'm about to enumerate it to you right now. Are you listening? Get ready. It's three words. God is you. You hear it? God is you. In Hebrew or Yiddish, it is Eveyod. And it's actually a very important spiritual meaning. It quite literally means, I shall be God. Now, what does this mean? By most people's standards, this is blasphemy. And yet it is a foundational part of certain religions as well as uh, my own personal framework of spirituality. So what I am talking about here, and what is actually mentioned here, I wasn't going to bring this up until we got to like Jesus or Buddha, but this is actually uh, really quite incredible how it talks about Krishna because it's using the exact metaphor that I uh, often talk about. Uh, this metaphor of God quite literally being you, and I mean you, listening right now, you are God. Not literally God, but you are God. You're God. No, you're kind of God, but you're kind of not God. You are God. That's the, how confusing it is and how confusing it should be. Remember, perplexities. So you got to remember here, 
foolish mundane scholars tell you that you don't need to submit to Krishna as a person. The human, the human, the human. You hear that? The human, the human, the human. Krishna is a human. Do you understand? Krishna is a person. Do you understand? Who are people? Humans. Krishna is human. Humans are Krishna. Do you start seeing what I'm talking about? Also, at present in this, is the idea that we need to realize our own potential, make use of our bodies, not only as physical implements to prevent death of other people, but of, as mental, emotional, and spiritual implements that can do great work and uh, further a lot of different things. We would be miserly, we would be kripanyas if we did not give ourselves fully into the uh, beingness of the universe. And what I mean by that is if we don't talk to God. Now, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God, but I still talk to God. Now, you might say that's pretty weird, but hey, I'm pretty weird. The way I talk to God is I talk to myself because we have a direct line right in us, all of us, to God. Now, that has nothing to do with a literality of God. I do not believe in a literal God. I barely believe in an informal God, so I, I have very limited beliefs about this. However, comma, I believe that the act, the act of addressing the universe as a person humbles us. It makes us aware that we are not only part of that world, part of that God in a way, but that we are it in its entirety as well. We are the universe within and without, a double, a doppelganger. We are the universe speaking about itself to itself to understand itself in order to not kill itself. Because the universe is self-loathing. It causes destruction and creation. It is a constant cycle. So if we think about religion in this way, where all of a sudden everything has godliness, right? This is not dissimilar to animism found in a whole number of cultures, mostly indigenous cultures. And thus we see that this idea exists beyond just the Bhagavad Gita, or for that matter, uh, Kabbalah. That's where I personally originally found this idea. That's uh, how I know some of his stuff. Uh, specifically from the work of uh, Rabbi Rav P.S. Berg, uh, who is, uh, I really like his work. He wrote a lot about Kabbalah, and his book, I'm looking, I'm trying to like view it from across the room. Let me see if I can pick it out. The Essential Zohar, I think it is. Yeah, The Essential Zohar. If you're interested in uh, learning a little more about a lot, mostly my, my beliefs, <laughs> they're in the Zohar. A lot of them are. And not directly, but a lot of the metaphorical stuff, uh, the setup. What forms spiritualities and uh, those ideas, it's very present in the Zohar. And it's also very present here. There is no difference between Krishna's within and without, and one who has no sense of this understanding is the greatest fool, the greatest pretender. Yeah. Now, the reason that this popped out to me so much is this small statement, and the statement above about the unborn within Krishna. What that means is not a pregnancy, but rather the fact that we often speak about, speak to ourselves as, uh, we will do this. I'm going to do this. I should do this. It's the shoulda, coulda, woulda. And in this case, that's the unborn. We need to speak to Krishna, ourselves, remember, right? It's us, God, our soul, whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you call it. If you call it the frickin' Timbuktu, I don't care what you call it. It's the soul. I don't know why I said Timbuktu. It's the first word that 
came to my brain. The unborn is all those ideas that are floating around in our soul that we haven't acted on yet, that aren't us. We need to speak directly to the Krishna that is with us, the us that we are presently. For that is the only way that we know that we can become more and more, that we can learn from our own experience. It is by being very present in our own reality. You don't notice the flower moving back and forth when you are lying in a field, when every other flower is moving back and forth. But get a little closer, and that flower will go across, back and forth, across the entirety of your eyes. It might even go beyond, and you might lose sight of it. That is how viewing God works. It is a great field. It is an infinite field, in a way. A field of endless flowers. And when you look at a flower, it is itself a universe. And this is actually true. This is the really scary part, is oftentimes when we start talking about infinity, we realize how true it is. In fact, we don't even know exactly how deep the rabbit hole goes. What I mean by that is we don't know if there's something beyond our universe in that direction, and we don't know if there's things that are even smaller that make up the smallest subatomic particles that we've found. The universe might be infinite in scale, which is a much more disturbing and frightening realization than the idea that the universe is big. Because an infinite scale is an infinite series of realities that are completely unobtainable and unthinkable to us, especially on that smaller end where you keep getting smaller. Wow, this was a very long tangent just to say that this statement right here I really agree with. We need to conversate with the God of ourselves. I've already talked about how uh, we truly are the God of ourselves. And that godliness of our soul is what we need to focus on. And what I mean by that is not the good parts of your soul. God is everything, remember? God is light and shadow. God is not light. God is the coming together of a dappled forest. It is the walking in that forest. It is the looking at one light shaft and seeing the dust within it. That is what you will experience when you truly begin to speak with yourself. When you speak with yourself truly, you will realize all the things that you can do, all the great things that you can bring humankind. You will no longer be miserly. Do you understand what I'm saying? I really hope you do, because this is one of the few things, spiritually, that I want to impart. I will tell you relatively little about my own spiritual beliefs eh, throughout this podcast, but this one will be a consistent thing that I, that I double back to, because it's one that I hold very close to myself. The idea that we need to communicate with ourselves as gods, as beings that can do almost anything. Humans are capable of so much in the present, right now. Jump up, go for a run, <laughs> you know? If you want to, you can just do it. Heck, go, uh, go do some jumping jacks, I don't know. <laughs> go write a book. Go do anything. Go do the thing that makes you the most joyful. Go do the thing that makes you the most depressed. Both are important and... Uh, powerful experiences that will bring you closer to knowledge about yourself. Every time that I've been depressed, I've eventually come out of it, and I've realized 
how incredibly beautiful the world is. And it's this moment of, uh, I do want to be alive. I do want to continue and to make incredible things. And I would never be in the place where I am saying those words to myself, when I am saying that I love my body and I love who I am and I love the fact that I don't necessarily have the same beliefs as other people and that that's okay. I wouldn't be saying those things if I didn't communicate with myself to my true self, to what I feel is my absolute truth. And maybe that's what they mean by Sri Krishna being an absolute truth. It's the absolute truth of the soul that only you, only you, can know about yourself. 8. I can find no means to drive away this grief which is drying up my senses. I will not be able to destroy it even if I win an unrivaled kingdom on the earth with sovereignty like the demigods in heaven. 9. Sanjaya said, Having spoken thus, Arjuna, chastiser of enemies, told Krishna, Govinda, I shall not fight, and fell silent. 10. O descendant of Bharata, at that time Krishna, smiling in the midst of both the armies, spoke the following words to the grief-stricken Arjuna. 11. The blessed Lord said, while speaking learned words, you are mourning for what is not worthy of grief. Those who are wise lament neither for the living nor the dead. Okay, I big disagree with that. I believe that we should allow ourselves emotional experiences. Jeez, holy texts are just a back and forth. Oh my God, that's the best thing ever. And then, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever. Yeah, well, let's see what the purport says. The Lord at once took the position of the teacher and chastised the student, calling him indirectly a fool. The Lord said, you are talking like a learned man, but you do not know that one who is learned, one who knows what is body and what is soul, does not lament for any stage of the body, neither in the living nor in the dead condition. As explained in later chapters, it will be clear that knowledge means to know matter and spirit and the controller of both. Arjuna argued that religious principles should be given more importance than politics or sociology. But he did not know that knowledge of matter, soul, and the supreme is more important than religious formularies. And because he was lacking in that knowledge, he should not have posed himself as a very learned man. As he did not appear to be a very learned man, he was consequently lamenting for something unworthy of lamentation. The body is born and is destined to be vanquished today or tomorrow. Therefore, the body is not as important as the soul. One who knows this is actually learned, and for him there is no cause for lamentation in any stage of the material body. We ran into another very important spiritual concept to me, which is the divestment of the soul from the body. I believe that we are a soul body, meaning that if there is a soul, which I uh, do not necessarily ab ascribe to, it is invested in every part of ourselves. That's the only way that the soul could work. And I don't mean that literally. There's not a literal thing that is a soul. These are representations, just ways of talking about human concepts. They're just representations of human communication. That's really all that that is. And I do take issue with this divestment of the soul from its body. By doing so, we cause people to become interested not in uh, higher pursuits, but rather in the mind itself, which is limited. There are experiences had by the body 
that will learn you far better than experiences of the mind. In the same way, there are experiences of emotion that will learn you far better than experiences of spirit, and vice versa. All of these things are important, and we should consider them all equally and as intrinsic parts of a whole, not as separate parts that make up a whole, but rather as a mixture, a great soup, the great soup of the soul. I do think, however, that the idea that we should not lament the dead is one that is both good and bad. I think that in certain cultures, we lament the dead too much. And what I mean by that is that we do not, we do not care about people in their, in, when they are alive. This is most obvious in Judeo-Christian, especially Christian and uh, Islamic belief, which is that it's more important what happens to someone when they die, if anything, because that's where they're going to go for the rest of eternity. They're either going to go to paradise or hell. So, you know, choose, choose wisely, right? Uh, and it matters what you did through life, but in that way, old age is somewhat diminished in its importance. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, in American culture, in which I live, most old people feel a lack of importance in society. They feel like uh, their time is over, even if they're still alive, like they're just hanging around for no reason. Uh, this isn't everybody, but a lot of this is caused by the workaholic culture and the uh, ex expectation that you are giving continuously to the community. I think that it is important to have moments where you give to the community, of course, but it's also just as important to have moments where you uh, step back and you view yourself and you consider what you give to and uh, whether you should. The ability to say no is just as important as the ability to say yes, if not more so. And, at least in my particular sense of the world, all that being said, the idea that death should not be lamented perhaps allow, allows us to enjoy life better and uh, not be so pained when death comes, for we know that it is coming and it would be talked about regularly. Once again, though, I do think that the emotional experience of handling grief and death is an important process that is very human and to expect people not to cry or lament the death or potential death of people is a bit of a reach, in my opinion. 12. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. Constant permanence, infinity, purport. In the Vedas, in the Katha Upanishad, as well as in the Svetasvatara Upanishad, it is said that the Supreme Personality of Godhead is the maintainer of innumerable living entities in terms of their different situations, according to individual work and the reaction to work. That Supreme Personality of Godhead is also, by his plenary proportions, alive in the heart of every living entity. Only saintly persons who can see within and without the same Supreme Personality of Godhead can actually attain to perfect peace eternal. The same Vedic truth is given here to Arjuna, and in that connection to all persons in the world who pose themselves as very learned but factually have but a poor fund of knowledge. The Lord says clearly that he himself, Arjuna, and all the kings who are assembled on the battlefield are eternally individual beings, and that the Lord is eternally the maintainer of the individual living entities, 
both in their conditioned and in their liberated situation. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is the Supreme Individual Person, and Arjuna, the Lord's Eternal Associate, and all the kings assembled there are individual eternal persons. It is not that they did not exist as individuals in the past, and it is not that they will not remain as eternal persons. Their individuality existed in the past, and their individuality will continue in the future without interruption. Therefore, there is no cause for lamentation for any one of the individual living entities. The Mayavada, or impersonal theory that after liberation, the individual soul separated by the covering of Maya, or illusion, will merge into the impersonal Brahman without individual existence is not supported herein by Lord Krishna, the supreme authority. Nor is the theory that we only think of individuality in the conditioned state supported herein. Krishna clearly says that in the future also the individuality of the Lord and others, as is confirmed in the Upanishads, will continue eternally. This statement of Krishna is authoritative because Krishna cannot be subject to illusion. If individuality is not a fact, then Krishna would not have stressed it so much, even for the future. The Mayavadi may argue that the individuality spoken of by Krishna is not spiritual, but material. Even accepting the argument that the individuality is material, then how can one distinguish Krishna's individuality? Krishna affirms his individuality in the past and confirms his individuality in the future also. He has confirmed his individuality in many ways, and impersonal Brahman has been declared subordinate to him. Krishna has maintained spiritual individuality all along, and if he is accepted as an ordinary conditioned soul in an individual consciousness, then his Bhagavad Gita has no value as an authoritative scripture. A common man with all the defects of human frailty is unable to teach that which is worth hearing. Bhagavad Gita is above such literature. No mundane book compares with Bhagavad Gita. When one accepts Krishna as an ordinary man, Bhagavad Gita loses all importance. The Mayavadi argues that the plurality mentioned in this verse is conventional, and that the plurality refers to the body. But previous to this verse, such a bodily conception has already been condemned. After condemning the bodily conception of the living entities, how was it possible for Krishna to place a conventional proposition on the body again? Therefore, the plurality is on spiritual grounds, as is confirmed by great teachers like Sri Ramanuja. It is clearly mentioned in many places in Bhagavad Gita that this spiritual plurality is understood by those who are devotees of the Lord. Those who are envious of Krishna as the Supreme Personality of Godhead have no bona fide access to this great literature. The non-devotee's approach to the teachings of Bhagavad Gita is something like that of a bee licking on a bottle of honey. One cannot have a taste of honey unless one can taste within the bottle. Similarly, the mysticism of Bhagavad Gita can be understood only by devotees, and no one else can taste it, as is stated in the fourth chapter of the book. Nor can the Gita be touched by persons who envy the very existence of the Lord. Therefore, the Mayavada explanation of the Gita is a most misleading presentation of the whole truth. Lord Caitanya has forbidden us to read commentaries made by the Mayavadis and warns that one who takes to an understanding of the Mayavada philosophy loses all power to understand the real mystery of the Gita. If individuality refers to the empirical universe, then there is no need for teaching by the Lord. The plurality of the individual souls and of the Lord is an eternal fact, 
and is confirmed by the Vedas as above mentioned. So clearly there's some division in Hindu mythology, in Hindu religion, concerning uh, exactly how the Supreme Personality of Godhead works and how reincarnation works, as that is what is being talked about here. The idea that is being put forth here is that these people and all people are eternal individuals. That means that they are reborn again and again, no matter what occurs. Mayavada uh, says the opposite, that we can eventually attain through a relationship to Sri Krishna, uh, the dissolving of the material and a complete association with the spiritual. Now, I disagree with both of these statements because both of them fail to understand what's actually being said here. If you actually go back and look at the words that are said, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. Now that's pretty coded, but remember what I said about the soul. The soul is the eternal part, right, in this construction. But by my construction, the body would, by its own nature, have to be eternal. And so how do I fit this into my own conception of spirituality? Well, I mean, this is really all we can do. For me, I look at the time aspect here. Let's take me, for example. I shall always exist in the past, present, and future. This is actually kind of true because I have an existence in the past, I have an existence right now in the present, and I have an existence in the future, so long as I don't die the instant that I speak these words. But even if I do, Bhagavad Gita would say that my soul is eternal and would continue afterwards. However, perhaps we can take a slightly different understanding. Perhaps what is suggested here is not that the soul is eternal, but rather the life force of a person continues one way or the other. Uh, the seeding of new life, the beginning of new things. Perhaps it is not an immortality of reality, or material, or spirituality at all, but rather a, an immortality, an eternalness, an infinity of reaction. And this fits much more closely with the definition of Sri Krishna, the causer of all causes. For that would be actually definable here, as a person is always causing and being caused upon. So in that way, their essence, their soul, continues to lead to things in the future, no matter if they are alive or dead. And in that way, they are Sri Krishna. They are the causer of all causes. That is what you are, too. You are a causer of causes, a mover of motion. <laughs> you can do an incredible number of things and cause an incredible number of things. In fact, you are causing something right now. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, you are causing something to happen, even if it is simply by the fact that you are not somewhere else. Imagine that. If you had uh, taken a moment to stop and stare at a bird today. You might not have arrived at the place uh, you were going at the right time, and maybe you would have missed seeing something, or experiencing something, or falling and hurting yourself, which might lead to other things. Sri Krishna is the essence of causing, and the essence of personhood by that nature. We are defined by our causing of things, and the fact that things are caused upon us. 
we are an accumulation of those causes and other people accumulate the causes that we foist upon them. I really think that that is what is being said here, and truly that's even quicker and more accessible to talk about than all of this ultimately nonsense about uh, impersonality and uh, individual existence. Because individual existence, we know it is true. We speak our, of ourselves as I, right? But we also know of communal existence. We speak of ourselves as we. And sometimes we speak of ourselves as they, or he or she. We speak of ourselves in a multitude of ways. Sometimes when we're really feeling reflexive, we speak as a you. And perhaps it's right there. For I want you to note something about a lot of holy texts. They speak to you. Ye, you. When we speak about you, we're speaking to you. But we're also speaking away from you. The second person is an extremely important point of view that is uh, relatively unexplored by uh, modern authors. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's some people that use it, but it's uh, generally kept for uh, short stories or poetry or myths or stories that are rather experimental. But it's also used most predominantly when we start talking about God. People always refer to God as you. But what are they actually speaking to? Well, what about this? What if our relationship to God was so reflexive that the you became an I? 13. As the embodied soul continually passes in this body, from boyhood to youth and then to old age, the soul similarly passes into another body at death. The self-realized soul is not bewildered by such a change. Purport. Since every living entity is an individual soul, each is changing his body at every moment, manifesting sometimes as a child, sometimes as a youth, and sometimes as an old man, although the same spirit soul is there and does not undergo any change. This individual soul finally changes the body itself, in transmigrating from one to another, and since it is sure to have another body in the next birth, either material or spiritual, there was no cause for lamentation by Arjuna on account of death, either over Bhishma or over Dronya, for whom he was so concerned. Rather, he should rejoice at their changing bodies from old to new ones, thereby rejuvenating their energy. Such changes of body are meant for varieties of enjoyment or suffering by the living entity, according to one's own work in this life. So Bhishma and Dronya, being noble souls, were surely going to have either spiritual bodies in the next life, or at least life in godly bodies for superior enjoyment of material existence. In either case, there is no cause for lamentation. Any man who has perfect knowledge of the constitution of the individual soul, the supersoul, and nature, both material and spiritual, is called a dira, or a most sober man. Such a man is never deluded by the change of bodies by the living entities. Now, the way that this is spoken about is as real, but remember, this doesn't literally happen. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense to the culture. People can believe whatever they want, but the reality is, is that we can never, ever prove reincarnation. We just can't. And also, I do think it's rather interesting to think of this as a good thing. I think of reincarnation as quite frightful. Perhaps that is the Buddhist influence that I've had in my life. That's just me. 
I view reincarnation more as a human experience, a metaphor for explaining how uh, we undergo changes in our lives, both mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And it is through those uh, returnings, those uh, high tides and low tides, that we find ourselves and we find a new body, a new truth. I certainly did. I found new truths and new bodies about myself every, every few months sometimes. Have you ever looked in a mirror and said, who am I? I do that sometimes. I think it's a very human experience. Mirrors are very important, and I think about mirrors a lot in how we look at each other, how we look at ourselves. I view viewing another person as a mirror. I see both myself and that person right there. Maybe that's because I view people as inherently everybody else. We are accumulations of derivative experiences had by not only our ancestors, but ourselves. We have experiences with people, and that forms our experience of life. It, it forms our awareness of our body, even. When I was in college, I had a very limited understanding of my body. I, as a non-binary, agender person, had never really, truly come to terms with the reality of my body. Some of that was because I was scared, because I knew that my body didn't look the way that I wanted it to. And that was really painful and scary. And so, when I started looking in the mirror, when I started to kneel upon the ground and uh, put my head to the dirt, and uh, when I started dancing under the tutelage of Dr. Molly Shanahan, I became so much more aware of my body, and especially how my body was queer and different than other people's bodies, by choice, by the choice of how I chose to use that body, by the way I chose to groom that body, by what clothes I chose to put upon that body. I began to go to Goodwill, and uh, I bought a lot of women's clothes for quite cheap. I still, that's still most of what I wear is that, uh, that big buy of stuff, because I was for the first time becoming aware that I didn't want to just be a man. And in a way, that is a reincarnation. Because I've experienced that, I view reincarnation very differently than other people. I don't view it as a spiritual process. I view it as an intrinsically human process that is very present and happening to all of us all the time. I see people, and sometimes when I speak to people, I can, I can tell that they're in that cycle of learning and in a way, reincarnating and resurrecting. 14. O oh, son of Kunti, the non-permanent appearance of heat and cold, happiness and distress, and their disappearance in due course, are like the appearance and disappearance of winter and summer seasons. They arise from sense perception. O oh, scion of Bharata, and one must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. 15. O oh, best among men, Arjuna, the person who is not disturbed by happiness and distress and is steady in both is certainly eligible for liberation. 16. Those who are seers of the truth have concluded that of the non-existent there is no endurance, 
and of the eternal there is no cessation. Seers have concluded this by studying the nature of both. Purport. There is no endurance of the changing body. As admitted by modern science, the body is changing every moment by the actions and reactions of different cells. Very true. And thus growth and old age are constantly taking place. But the spiritual soul exists permanently, remaining the same in all the changing circumstances of the body and the mind. That is the difference between matter and spirit. By nature, the body is ever-changing and the soul is eternal. This conclusion is established by all classes of seers of the truth, impersonalist and personalist. In the Vishnu Parana, also this truth has been established. It is stated there that Vishnu and his abodes have all been self-illuminated in, in spiritual existence. The words existent and non-existent refer only to spirit and matter. That is the version of all seers of truth. This is the beginning of the instruction by the Lord to the living entities who are bewildered by the influence of ignorance. Removal of this ignorance means reestablishment of the eternal relationship between the worshipper and the worshipable, and the consequent understanding of the difference between part and parcel living entities and the supreme personality of Godhead. One can understand the nature of the supreme by thorough study of oneself. The difference between oneself and the supreme being understood as the relationship between the part and the whole. In the Vedanta Sutra, as well as in Srimad Bhagavatam, the supreme has been accepted as the origin of all emanations. Such emanations are experienced by superior and inferior natural sequences. The living entities belong to the superior nature, as will be revealed in the seventh chapter. Although there is no difference between the energy and the energetic, the energetic is accepted by the supreme, and energy or nature is accepted as the subordinate. The relationship of the living entities, therefore, is to be always subordinate to the supreme lord, as in the case of the master and the servant, or the teacher and the taught. Such clear knowledge is impossible to grasp under the spell of ignorance. And to drive away such ignorance, the Lord teaches Bhagavad Gita for the enlightenment of all beings for all time. I'm going to take a little bit of issue with some of these ideas. Knowledge and teaching is a conversation of equals. We all bring our own experiences and knowledge to a conversation. When we speak with Sri Krishna or God or our soul or whatever we want to define this as, we are speaking in a conversation. We cannot be truly taught because we are also doing teaching. To refuse this is to truly be ignorant. And in that way, I see this purport as ignorance despite its grounding in a bunch of different beliefs and ideas had by a culture. This is because I fear that through a loss of direct communication and conversation, a lack of understanding that uh, the teaching relationship is a two-way street, we fail to understand not only ourselves, but other people. And this would fail the one thing that Sri Krishna actually wants us to do, which is to work to better understand the world, to better understand how to attain great things, to not be miserly. So in that way, I, to some extent, disagree with this. I also disagree that the spiritual soul is uh, non-changing. My soul has changed many times. Is it not true that people change their name? 
Is it not true that people change their soul? Have you not felt like your whole existence has changed before? I feel like this comes from a person who is solidified in what they believe and understand, and uh, truly, uh, to not do so is the true wisdom. Because we, if we do not know, then we can learn more. If we do know, then we cannot learn anymore. And it cuts off knowledge from us. And so we should act in order to learn as much as we can at all times. Uh, that is my code. That is what I believe. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I have no issue with that. But I just think that it would be great if everyone recognized the world is constantly changing and that your soul is changing too. And you can uh, learn so many amazing things. You can become a more ethical person. You can become a smarter person, <laughs> although that's pretty dang hard. Um, you can become a more spiritual person if you want to. You can become a more emotional person. All of these things shift the soul, do they not? They shift our essence. Uh, different proportions of these things. I view the soul as a sphere that is constantly spinning. And within it, there are innumerable uh, pieces of clay of infinite color. How this spinning goes will influence the position of these strings of clay that all wrap around each other. And through this spinning, you will eventually find what you feel comfortable with, and you might find stability. However, it is just as fine to keep spinning the clay ball and allow the colors to swirl eternally, for that is the eternal change, the great change, the change of soul. It is for this that we may change eternally with our body, for our lives themselves are eternal in history. We will always exist how we are right now, even if we are not experiencing it. That moment in time shall always exist. And in that way, your soul will always be stable there. You may always remember its feeling, its motion. And so I do not fear the spinning of a soul, the great motion itself. For those revolutions, the slow drifting of different colors into their places at different times, allows us to experience a great deal more of life than we could otherwise. This is my belief, not of Bhagavad Gita's, but I think it's a better idea than what Bhagavad Gita stresses, of an eternal soul that never changes. That prevents us from actually learning from our mistakes. Uh, who knows, maybe as we go along, I might find that there is something that explains this, and there probably is. However, and I want to make this clear, that we should not have to explain away things that are reality. If we can point to someone's soul changing, someone's whole entire outlook on life changing, we can quite definitively say that we shouldn't maintain things as inherently very stable. This goes for binaries as well, such as the gender binary, uh, racial binaries, and uh, binaries of class. 17. That which pervades the entire body is indestructible. No one is able to destroy the imperishable soul. That I agree with super hard. Purport. The verse more clearly explains the real nature of the soul, which is spread all over the body. Oh, hey, what do you know? So we actually agree. That's pretty cool. I already enumerated all this then. Anyone can understand what is spread all over the body. It is consciousness, selfhood, beingness. 
Everyone is conscious about the pains and pleasures of the body in part or as a whole. The pains and pleasures of one body are unknown to another. Therefore, each and every body contains an individual soul, and the symptom of the soul's presence is perceived as individual consciousness. Epic. I'll agree completely with that. That explains my thoughts about the soul body, as I define it, quite well. I probably was more rambling than that. 18. Only the material body of the indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal living entity is subject to destruction. Therefore, fight, O descendant of Bharata. 19. He who thinks that the living entity is the slayer, or that the entity is slain, does not understand. One who is in knowledge knows that the self slays not nor is slain. Purport. When an embodied being is hurt by fatal weapons, it is to be known that the living entity within the body is not killed. The spirit soul is so small that it is impossible to kill him by any material weapon, nor is the living entity killable in any case because of his spiritual constitution. What is killed or is supposed to be killed is the body only. This, however, does not at all encourage killing of the body. The Vedic injunction is mahimsirat sarva bhutani, never commit violence to anyone. The understanding that a living entity is not killed does not encourage animal slaughter. Killing the body of anyone without authority is abominable and is punishable by the law of the state as well as by the law of the Lord. Arjuna, however, is being engaged in killing for the principle of religion, and not whimsically. Once again, I agree quite closely with this purport and these passages. I do agree that we should not only not kill ourselves, but we shouldn't kill others, unless there is serious harm being done by those people against you or others. It is only in that that violence is uh, allowed, permitted, by, by my personal ethical standards, which also applies to animal slaughter. I personally am a vegan, although I do eat eggs, so, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know how it is these days. I need some protein. Um, but nonetheless, I don't eat any meat. I don't believe in the slaying of animals. That's my personal uh, dogma, but you can follow it if you want. Hey, you know, if you, if you, if you hear that and you're like, yeah, I kind of agree. It's not that hard, actually. Uh, often it comes down to just uh, learning to cook well. Uh, I, I found that a lot of people learn to cook by becoming vegan. I've met like uh, at least five people who've told me that when they became vegetarian or vegan or really altered their diet in any major way, they suddenly started cooking more because they couldn't find as much stuff to eat out or they couldn't find uh, stuff at the grocery store that you know was just like processed and stuff that didn't have that stuff in it. And so they started cooking and they started uh, realizing stuff about about how, how the world works, and so I, I think it's a kind of cool thing. But I do think it's very interesting, the 18th uh, line here, which is, only the material body of the indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal living entity is subject to destruction. So by this measure, they're talking about people. Uh, people are subject to destruction. Uh, therefore, feel free to fight. Uh, it is your time. And I do agree. I think that we need to take hold of life by the reins, by the horns, and live it not only fully, fighting for everything, but we must also be aware that we are destructible. And uh, though whatever you believe about the soul, that doesn't really matter. What matters is our life as we live it in the moment. 
And so, yes, let us fight. Uh, and I mean fight in the great sense, where uh, fight for life, fight for art, fight for the creation of things, fight for the destruction of things that cause harm. All of these are true uses of the material body for great things. And when you are eventually destroyed, shouldn't you be happy that you have done great things, that you have fought? That, I think, is what is being said in the 18th line, and I, I think that it is a little missed in the purport. 20. For the soul there is never birth nor death, nor, having once been, does he ever cease to be. He is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, undying and primeval. He is not slain when the body is slain. 21. O Partha, how can a person who knows that the soul is indestructible, unborn, eternal, and immutable kill anyone or cause anyone to kill? Purport. Everything has its utility, and a man who is situated in complete knowledge knows how and where to apply a thing for its proper utility. Similarly, violence also has its use, and how to apply violence rests with the person in knowledge. Although the justice of the peace awards capital punishment to a person condemned for murder, the justice of the peace cannot be blamed because he orders violence to another according to the codes of justice. In the Manu Samhita, the law book for mankind, it is supported that a murderer should be condemned to death so that in his next life he will not have to suffer for the great sin he has committed. Therefore, the king's punishment of hanging a murderer is actually beneficial. Similarly, when Krishna orders fighting, it must be concluded that violence is for supreme justice. And, as such, Arjuna should follow the instruction, knowing well that such violence committed in the act of fighting for justice is not at all violence because, at any rate, the man, or rather the soul, cannot be killed. For the administration of justice, so-called violence is permitted. A surgical operation is not meant to kill the patient, but is for his cure. Therefore, the fighting to be executed by Arjuna under the instruction of Krishna is with full knowledge, and so there is no possibility of sinful reaction. So I agree with that definition of violence at the end there, though I disagree with how they talk about it in terms of capital punishment. I mean, I don't personally believe in the death penalty in the modern day. However, comma, I do believe that people who are murderers, some of them just cannot function in society and, and do need to perhaps not be punished, but put somewhere where they will not harm society. And in that way, perhaps it, violence is required to do that. Furthermore, as a, somebody who is very f aware of the growing fascist power in America, I also want to state that sometimes you need to use violence in order to prevent something far more violent from coming about. I mean, whatever is happening right now in America and an association with the love of the authoritarian on the conservative right is only increasing, and that does not bode well for those of us who do not like to use violence like myself. And because of that, I, I do fear the future. Now, I do want to draw, you, uh, draw some attention to the idea that the soul has neither birth nor death, as it says in line 20 here. It is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, undying, and primeval. And I think this is more true than many things. For we do not remember our birth, and anybody who tells you is lying. I was, I was apparently looking around when I was born, which is very rare, apparently. Uh, I, like, my eyes were open, but I do not remember, right? 
if my eyes were open, should not I have remembered if the soul could remember birth? So in that way, yes, it is very true. And in death, there are a, uh, we've done research on this, a whole cocktail of drugs get slammed through your brain. Basically, every single neurotransmitter just gets sent all at once. Dopamine, serotonin, probably like epinephrine and stuff is also flowing all throughout your body. As well as the love one, uh, the one that people release when they have an, orga an orgasm with a partner. Um, I can't, it starts with an O and it's like an X, it's like ox something. I can't remember the name of it. But all of those get released all at the same time and you literally could not, you wouldn't be able to be present for your death because of all of those drugs just completely messing with your mind. So in that way, we never, our souls, the part pieces of ourselves that are conscious, uh, they, we never actually remember those events. Very true. 22. As a person puts on new garments, giving up old ones, similarly, the soul accepts new material bodies, giving up the old and useless ones. I would add to that that there is also the change of the soul. I think the soul maintains its same, maybe the soul doesn't change, but the distribution of the soul's inner parts changes. Maybe that actually aligns what I'm saying more closely with Bhagavad Gita. That's kind of an interesting thought. Purport. Change of body by the atomic individual soul is an accepted fact. Even some of the modern scientists who do not believe in the existence of the soul, but at the same time cannot explain the source of energy from the heart, have to accept continuous changes of body which appear from childhood to boyhood, and from boyhood to youth, and again from youth to old age. From old age, the change is transferred to another body. This has already been explained in the previous verse. Now, I do want to push back on this. The source of energy in our heart is a small piece of elemental iron. And they, you can look this up. This is real. There's a piece of iron pretty close to the center of our heart that is used as a source of transfer for uh, lots of different things. As for the energy, uh, there's electricity through, running throughout all of our bodies all the time, uh, everywhere. So it is not localized to the heart in that way. Transference of the atomic individual soul to another body is also made possible by the grace of the super soul. The super soul fulfills the desire of the soul as one friend fulfills the desire of another. The Vedas, such as Mundaka Upanishad, as well as the Svetasvatara Upanishad, confirm this concept of two kinds of souls by comparing them to two friendly birds sitting on the same tree. One of the birds, the individual atomic soul, is eating the fruit of the tree, and the other bird is simply watching his friend. Of these two birds, although they are the same in quality, one is captivated by the fruits of the material tree, while the other is simply witnessing his activities. This could be probably uh, related to the ideas of the id, superego, and ego, as well as the idea of an omnipresence of God, the super soul in this case being the informal God that is always watching us, always present with us. Of these two birds, although they are the same in quality, one is captivated by the fruits of the material tree, while the other is simply witnessing his activities. Krishna is the witnessing bird, and Arjuna is the eating bird. Although they are friends, one is still the master, and the other is the servant. Don't love that master-slave dialectic. Uh, forgetfulness of this relationship by the atomic soul is the cause of one's changing his position from one tree to another, or from one body to another. 
The jiva soul is struggling very hard on the tree of the material body, but as soon as he agrees to accept the other bird as the supreme spiritual master, as Arjuna had agreed to do by voluntary surrender unto Krishna for instruction, the subordinate bird immediately becomes free from all lamentations. Both the Katha Upanishad and the Sveta Svatara Upanishad confirm this statement. 23. The soul can never be cut into pieces by any weapon, nor can he be burned by fire, nor moistened by water, nor withered by wind. 24. This individual soul is unbreakable and insoluble, and can be neither burned nor dried. He is everlasting, all-pervading, unchangeable, immovable, and eternally the same. 25. It is said that the soul is invisible, inconceivable, immutable, and unchangeable. Knowing this, you should not grieve for the body. This is all stuff we've thought about before. Purport. As described above, the magnitude of the soul is such that for our material calculation, he cannot be detected even by the most powerful microscope. Therefore, he is invisible. As far as his existence is concerned, no one can establish his experimental stability beyond the proof of sruti, or Vedic wisdom. We have to accept this truth because there is no other source for understanding the existence of the soul, although it is a fact by perception. There are many things we have to accept solely on grounds of superior authority. No, we don't. Uh, no one can deny the existence of his father based upon the authority of his mother. There is no other source of understanding the identity of the father except on the authority of the mother. Similarly, there is no other source of understanding the soul except by studying the Vedas, which is incorrect. In fact, in this very text, they say that you can gain an understanding of the soul by understanding yourself. So this is uh, contradictory. In other words, the soul is inconceivable to human experimental knowledge. The soul is consciousness and conscious. That also is the statement of the Vedas, and we have to accept that. Unlike the bodily changes, there is no change for the soul. As eternally unchangeable, he always remains atomic in comparison to the infinite supreme soul. The supreme soul is infinite, and the atomic soul is infinitesimal. Therefore, the infinitesimal soul, being unchangeable, can never become equal to the infinite soul or the supreme personality of Godhead. The concept is repeated in the Vedas in different ways, just to confirm the stability of the conception of the soul. Repetition of something is necessary in order that we understand the matter thoroughly, without error. Is there a difference between the infinitesimal and the infinite? Can we actually define a difference between these two? It's actually surprisingly hard to do so in speech. Both of them represent something beyond our understanding, something that cannot be reached. They could even be described as the same thing occurring in different places. Uh, in that way, perhaps the Supreme Soul is the atomic soul, represented differently, and the Supreme Soul is the expansion of the uh, atomic soul into something uh, completely different, uh, com uh, more full and uh, not structured by time, if that makes sense, as our individual atomic souls have different conceptions at different times, at least the way I understand it. I certainly change over time. And so the supreme soul would be the greater soul, the soul that exists from the accumulation of all other souls, a sort of soul sea that is present everywhere and all the time, 
This does not differ that much from the idea of the supersoul, really. However, it is important to note that the supersoul is defined as being a friend and contiguous with the individual atomic soul, whereas the supreme soul appears to be more of an accumulation, because infinite must be made up of infinitesimal. And in that same way, the infinitesimal is definedly made up of the infinite, though only a part of it. And because of the nature of infinity, we cannot even define exactly what part the infinitesimal makes up. 26. If, however, you think the soul is perpetually born and always dies, still you have no reason to lament, O mighty armed. Purport. There is always a class of philosophers akin to the Buddhists who do not believe in the existence of the soul beyond the body. When Lord Krishna spoke Bhagavad Gita, it appears that such philosophers existed and were known as the Lokayatikas and Vaibhasikyas. These philosophers maintained their life symptoms take place at a certain mature condition of the material combination. The modern material scientist and materialistic philosophers think similarly. According to them, the body is a combination of physical elements, and at a certain stage, the life symptoms develop by interaction of these elements. The science of anthropology is largely based on this philosophy. Currently, many pseudo-religions, now becoming fashionable in America, are also adhering to this concept, as well as to the nihilistic, non-devotional Buddhist sects. I, this is an interesting point. I do think this is somewhat true, that there is a uh, distance, a non-devotional aspect to a lot of American life and a lot of Buddhism as well. Although I would push back on the idea that Buddhism has no devotion within it. Uh, simply look at Vasaidra Buddhism and you will be clearly shown that there is a lot of devotion involved in Buddhism. But it is devotion to the everyday. It is devotion to the material, to the mundane. For they believe that the sacred is a part of the mundane. That what we are really seeing is something more akin to the supra-mundane, as the Buddhists call it, or uh, perhaps more quickly, the transmundane, that which is both sacred and mundane. This is the reason for uh, Tibetans leaving uh, temples and such to sit, even if they are not being used, uh, sometimes on very high mountains, and they will just let it decompose. They will not tear it down because they understand it is a thing, and that thing must sit and decompose for it is a sacred thing, and building something is sacred. In that way, destruction is natural, but not something we should bring about quickly. Hinduism clearly has some holdups about this. Uh, I mean, this entire book really uh, so far has been about how we need to be able to kill our enemies. That's what most of the lines have actually been about. The idea that because the soul is eternal and death is meaningless, that we can kill whenever we want, so long as it is for a good thing that will bring about better things. A sort of utilitarianism. I disagree. We should really be not looking at things utilitarianly, and we should try to view things also materially. Uh, it is through materialism and spiritualism that we can gain a full understanding of the world, for refusing one is to refuse the nature of the other. The purport continues. Even if Arjuna did not believe in the existence of the soul, as in the Vavhashika philosophy, there would still have been no cause for lamentation, 
no one would lament the loss of a certain bulk of chemicals and stop discharging his prescribed duties. On the other hand, in modern science and scientific warfare, so many tons of chemicals are wasted in achieving victory over the enemy. According to the Vaibhashika philosophy, the so-called soul, or atma, vanishes along with the deterioration of the body. So, in any case, whether Arjuna accepted the Vedic conclusion that there is an atomic soul, or whether he did not believe in the existence of the soul, he had no reason for lamenting. According to this theory, since there are so many entities generating out of matter every moment, and so many of them are being vanquished at every moment, there is no need to grieve for such an incidence. However, since he was not risking rebirth of the soul, Arjuna had no reason to be afraid of being affected with sinful activities due to killing his grandfather and teacher. But, at the same time, Krishna sarcastically addressed Arjuna as Mahabaho, mighty-armed, because he, at least, did not accept the theory of the Vaibhashikas, which leaves aside the Vedic wisdom. As a Kasatriya, Arjuna belonged to the Vedic culture, and it behooved him to continue to follow its principles. 27. For one who has taken his birth, death is certain, and for one who is dead, birth is certain. Therefore, in the unavoidable discharge of your duty, you should not lament. Purport. According to logicians, one has to take birth according to one's activities of life, and after finishing one term of activities, one has to die to take birth for the next. In this way, the cycle of birth and death is ever revolving, one after the other, without liberation. This cycle of birth and death does not, however, support unnecessary murder, slaughter, and war. But, at the same time, violence and war are inevitable factors in human society for keeping law and order. I disagree about war, specifically. Um, violence, I think, is always going to be a thing, but... Perhaps we do not need the scale of war that we have and have had in history. The Battle of Kuruksetra, being the will of the Supreme, was an inevitable event, and to fight for the right cause is the duty of a Kasatriya. Why should he be afraid of or aggrieved at the death of his relatives since he was discharging his proper duty? He did not deserve to break the law, thereby becoming subjected to the reactions of sinful acts, of which he was so afraid. By ceasing from the dis discharge of his proper duty, he would not be able to stop the death of his relatives, and he would be degraded on account of his selection of the wrong path of action. 28. All created beings are unmanifest in their beginnings, manifest in their interim state, and unmanifest again when they are annihilated. So what need is there for lamentation? 29. Some look on the soul as amazing, some describe him as amazing, and some hear of him as amazing, while others, even after hearing about him, cannot understand him at all. Now take note here of the use of him and the reference to soul. Soul is being personified here. Now perhaps that is just personifying a single soul, but it is similar to the personification of God, is it not? The personification of Sri Krishna, even. And I will say that this adds credence to the idea that these supreme personalities of Godhead, which exist in almost every religion, have a lot more to do with the individual soul, the person, the human, and their own experiences and reformations and resurrections in their own life than it does with the idea that there is a God beyond. It is intrinsic to us, rather. 30. O descendant of Bharata, 
He who dwells in the body is eternal and can never be slain. Therefore, you need not grieve for any creature. 31. Considering your specific duty as a Kasatriya, you should know that there is no better engagement for you than fighting on religious principles, and so there is no need for hesitation. 32. O Partha, happy are the Kasatriyas to whom such fighting opportunities come unsought, opening for them the doors of the heavenly planets. 33. If, however, you do not fight this religious war, then you will certainly incur sin for neglecting your duties and thus lose your reputation as a fighter. 34. People will always speak of your infamy, and for one who has been honored, dishonor is worse than death. 35. The great generals who have highly esteemed your name and fame will think that you have left the battlefield out of fear only, and thus they will consider you a coward. 36. Your enemies will describe you in many unkind words and scorn your ability. What could be more painful for you? 37. O son of Kunti, either you will be killed on the battlefield and attain the heavenly planets, or you will conquer and enjoy the earthly kingdom. Therefore get up and fight with determination. 38. Do thou fight for the sake of fighting, without considering happiness or distress, loss or gain, victory or defeat, and by so doing you shall never incur sin. PURPORT Lord Krishna now directly says that Arjuna should fight for the sake of fighting because Krishna desires the battle. There is no consideration of happiness or distress, profit or gain, victory or defeat, in the activities of Krishna consciousness. That everything should be performed for the sake of Krishna is transcendental consciousness. So there is no reaction from material activities. Anyone who acts for his sense gratification, either in goodness or in passion, is liable to the reaction, good or bad. Anyone who has completely surrendered himself in the activities of Krishna consciousness is no longer obliged to anyone, nor is he a debtor to anyone, as we are in the ordinary course of activities. It is said, anyone who has completely surrendered unto Krishna, Mukunda, giving up all other duties, is no longer a debtor, nor is he obliged to anyone, not the demigods, nor the sages, nor the people in general, nor kinsmen, nor humanity, nor forefathers. That is the indirect hint given by Krishna to Arjuna in this verse, and the matter will be more clearly explained in the following verses. So yeah, uh, this is pretty consistent, the idea that one should fight and one should do things simply for the sake of doing them, for the gratification of Krishna instead of the gratification of oneself. 39. Thus far I have declared to you the analytical knowledge of Sankhya philosophy. Now listen to the knowledge of yoga, whereby one works without fruitive result. O son of Pritha, when you act by such intelligence, you can free yourself from the bondage of works. 40. In this endeavor there is no loss or diminution and a little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. PURPORT Activity in Krishna consciousness or acting for the benefit of Sri Krishna without expectation of sense gratification is the highest transcendental quality of work. Even a small beginning of such activity finds no impediment, nor can that small beginning be lost at any stage. Any work begun on the material plane has to be done nicely till the end, Otherwise, the whole attempt becomes a failure. But any work begun in Krishna consciousness has a permanent effect, even though not finished. 
The performer of such work is therefore not at a loss, even if his work in Krishna consciousness is incomplete. One percent done in Krishna consciousness bears permanent results, so that the next beginning is from the point of two percent. Whereas in material activity without 100% success there is no profit. There is a nice verse in this connection in Srimad Bhagavatam. It says, If someone gives up his occupational duties and works in Krishna consciousness and then again falls down on account of not being complete in such activities, still what loss is there on his part? And what can one gain if one performs his material activities very perfectly? Or, as the Christians say, what profit if a man, if he gain the whole world, yet suffers the loss of his eternal soul? Material activities and the results of such actions will end with the body. But work in Krishna consciousness will carry the person again to Krishna consciousness, even after the loss of this body. At least one is sure to have a chance in the next life of being born into human society, either in the family of a great cultured brahmana or else in a rich aristocratic family that will give one a further chance for elevation. That is the unique quality of work done in Krishna consciousness. So I do think that this gets to an interesting point of uh, different ways of thinking. The uh, way of thinking materially is often one that is quick, is it not? Ah, let me, let me buy this, let me do this. It is quick, it is uh, momentary, fleeting. And yet, I think what they're trying to get at here is the idea of slow thinking, of taking time. Uh, certainly the most impactful thinking I ever do is when I take it slow. In fact, you'll notice sometimes when I'm a little more hurried sounding in my uh, delivery, I'll change the way I say things and I'll say things wrong. There's probably things I'm editing out because uh, I said them too fast. I think that Krishna consciousness in this way is that sort of slow thinking, the ability to sit in one place and to really consider something, uh, even if it does not necessarily have immediate gratification. 41. Those who are on this path are resolute in purpose, and their aim is one. O beloved child of the Kurus, the intelligence of those who are irresolute is many-branched. 42 and 43. Men of small knowledge are very much attached to the flowery words of the Vedas, which recommend various fruitive activities for elevation to heavenly planets, resultant good birth, power, and so forth. Being desirous of sense gratification and opulent life, they say that there is nothing more than this. This would be defined by uh, modern philosophers as a form of Epicureanism, or hedonism even, searching for pleasures in a sacred sense, the hope that these pleasures will lead one to elevation and good birth and power, etc. 44. In the minds of those who are too attached to sense enjoyment and material opulence, and who are bewildered by such things, the resolute determination for devotional service to the Lord does not take place. Purport. Samadhi means fixed mind. The Vedic definition the Nirukti says, when the mind is fixed for understanding the self, this is called samadhi. Samadhi is never possible for persons interested in material sense enjoyment, nor for those who are bewildered by such temporary things. They are more or less condemned by the process of material energy itself. I like this idea of samadhi, of, of fixed mind. The idea that when we are fixated on something, an idea, we pour ourselves fully into it, and it can really scare people around us. I mean, if you've seen someone who is full up to the brim with hope and, and, and the knowledge that they need to do something, 
My goodness, their eyes practically sing. 45. The Vedas mainly deal with the subject of the three modes of material nature. Rise above these modes, O Arjuna. Be transcendental to all of them. Be free from all dualities and from all anxieties for gain and safety, and be established in the self. 46. All purposes that are served by the small pond can at once be served by the great reservoirs of water. Similarly, all the purposes of the Vedas can be served to one who knows the purpose behind them. 47. You have a right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself the cause of action and never be attached to inaction. Mmm, that I really like, because that gets to the idea of Sri Krishna as the causer of all causes, and of us being inherently uh, both causer, but also being acted upon, caused upon. And so we cannot actually cause action. It is through the working of other things surrounding us that causes us to act, and through our action we cause other action. And this is what Sri Krishna loves. It is why Sri Krishna is saying, do not be attached to inaction. You must act to keep this cycle of cause and effect going. Purport. There are three considerations here. Prescribed duties, capricious work, and inaction. Prescribed duties means activities in terms of one's position in the modes of material nature. Capricious work means actions without the sanction of authority, and inaction means not performing one's prescribed duties. The Lord advised that Arjuna not be inactive, but that he be active in his duty without being attached to the result. One who is attached to the result of his work is also the cause of the action. Thus, he is the enjoyer or sufferer of the result of such actions. As far as prescribed duties are concerned, they can be fitted into three subdivisions, routine work, emergency work, and desired activities. Routine work in terms of the spiritual injunctions is done without desire for results, as one simply has to do it. Obligatory work is action in the mode of goodness. Work with results becomes the cause of bondage, and so such work is not auspicious. Everyone has his proprietary right in regard to his duties, but should act without attachment to the result. Thus, such disinterested obligatory duties doubtlessly lead one to the path of liberation. <laughs> I like that. The idea that you should not be interested in your work is, is what this is actually saying, that you should be disinterested in obligatory duties that you don't really care about. Arjuna was advised by the Lord to fight as a matter of duty without attachment to the result. His non-participation in the battle is another side of attachment. Such attachment never leads one to the path of salvation. Any attachment, positive or negative, is cause for bondage. Inaction is sinful. Therefore, fighting as a matter of duty was the only auspicious path to salvation for Arjuna. I want to bring your attention to uh, line 45 that we just, that this purport uh, covered, or rather, uh, no, 46, that says, uh, similarly, all the purposes of the Vedas can be served to one who knows the purpose behind them. Well, how does one simply know the purpose behind them? Well, that's a co very complex thing, right? Perhaps it is in the searching for the purpose behind something that one can find it. Uh, I think that that's quite true, that if we, if we search for 
meaning we might find it. And it is through that that the Bhagavad Gita directly tells us through these lines, not even through the purports, which were written later, uh, that we should, we should be focused on not just viewing words as words, but as metaphors, as things that act beyond what we can necessarily see, what we can understand. Uh, not just that these words are given to us and that we should take them as truth, but rather that we must see what is behind the words, because the words themselves do not speak real truth because they are limited. They are quite literally material. Words on a page. That's what I'm reading from right now. 48. Be steadfast in your duty, O Arjuna, and abandon all attachment to success or failure. Such evenness of mind is called yoga. 49. O Dhananjaya, rid yourself of all fruit of activities by devotional service, and surrender fully to that consciousness. Those who want to enjoy the fruits of their work are misers. 50. A man engaged in devotional service rids himself of both good and bad actions, even in this life. Therefore, strive for this yoga, O Arjuna, which is the art of all work. 51. The wise, engaged in devotional service, take refuge in the Lord and free themselves from the cycle of birth and death by renouncing the fruits of action in the material world. In this way, they can attain that state beyond all miseries. Ah, yes, the state of enlightenment or so. Moksha. 52. When your intelligence has passed out of the dense forest of delusion, you will become indifferent to all that has been heard and all that is to be heard. Hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Ooh. This is directly a metaphor that I use. It's actually weird to see it show up here. Um, because I use, you actually heard me use it earlier, the idea of dappled light in a forest, a dense forest, that only allows for rays of light to come in. I use this to represent the, the non-dual nature of the world, the idea that there is shadow in the dark forest, but there is also light that comes through. And, and that is our soul, in a way. Yes, you must pass out of the dense forest in order to uh, become indifferent to all that is heard. And that is because what is being talked about is the reckoning of the soul, the harrowing of the soul. If you've ever been to the forest at night, the dark forest, you know that you will hear a rabbit and you will be so scared that you will practically fall down upon yourself. How fast you run. And you might trip upon a root and slam your head into a tree if you are not careful. That is the dark forest. I have walked the dark forest many times. I mean that both metaphorically and in reality. Sometimes under the full moon, sometimes under the moon of the horned god. I see both. I am both. And in that way, we are all a forest unto ourselves. But perhaps, through walking in that forest and not ignoring it, we can come to the point where we know ourselves, know the world, for by walking through the forest, we learn about the world. We may touch the mushrooms, the fallen wood, the stones of the creek. We may become aware of the animals and the wind and the water. We might have to stop and make fire so that we may scare off wolves that may kill us if we are not careful. This is the dark forest. This is the true soul. For although I may conceptualize the soul as a spinning uh, accumulation of tiny pieces of colored clay, 
I also view the soul as a landscape, as I said before in previous episodes. And the soul as landscape right here is one of a dense forest. Purport. There are many good examples in the lives of the great devotees of the Lord, of those who became indifferent to the rituals of the Vedas simply by devotional service to the Lord. When a person factually understands Krishna and one's relationship with Krishna, one naturally becomes completely indifferent to the rituals of fruitive activities, even though he may be an experienced Brahmana. Sri Madhavendra Puri, a great devotee and Akarya, in the line of devotees, says, O Lord, in my prayers three times a day, all glory to you. Bathing, I offer my obeisances unto you. O demigods, O forefathers, please excuse me for my inability to offer you my respects. Now wherever I sit, I am able to remember the great descendant of the Yadu dynasty, Krishna, the enemy of Karsa, and thereby I can free myself from all sinful bondage. I think this is sufficient for me. The Vedic rites and rituals comprehending all kinds of prayer three times a day, taking a bath early in the morning, offering respects to the forefathers and so on are imperative for the beginning of human life. But when one is fully in Krishna consciousness and is engaged in his transcendental loving service, one becomes indifferent to all these regulative principles because he has already attained perfection. If one can reach the platform of understanding by service to the Supreme Lord Krishna, he no longer has the duty to execute the different types of penances and sacrifices recommended in revealed scriptures. And similarly, if one has not understood that the purpose of the Vedas is to reach Krishna and simply engages in the rituals, then he is uselessly wasting time in such engagements. Persons in Krishna consciousness transcend the limit of Sabda Brahma, or the range of the Vedas and Upanishads. Ah, yes. And this is what I am, in fact, doing right now. I am telling you that there is incorrectness here. That is what someone would do if they were beyond this. And, of course, I am, I think. That is not to say I have attained perfection. I don't actually agree with the concept. I believe that everybody is in a state of constant imperfection that is mixed with a knowledge that other people believe you to be perfect. And I don't mean that literally. Not everyone believes that. But deep down... Because we are ourselves, our perfect selves, truly, everyone must understand us as that perfect self. And so though we might be imperfect ourselves, everybody else will understand us as perfect. In that way, a person can attain perfection, but still be not only in devotion, but in learning with uh, Sri Krishna in this case, or just the universe because that is really what we're talking about here. We're talking about the process of learning with the universe, because that doesn't require any book or ritual. It requires you to sit down, think, and be. Oftentimes, just being will tell you a lot more about the universe than uh, thinking even will. So, uh, for a moment, after this podcast, listen to the rest of it. We still have a, a few more purports to go. Turn this off, and if you have five minutes even, Turn everything off. I, I know how cliche it is. I know, I know. Turn everything off that you have, your computer, your phone, and sit down. Or stand if you like to stand. Or lay down if you like to lay down. But don't fall asleep. And I want you to just lay there, or sit there, or stand there. You can close your eyes if you need to, but don't fall asleep. 
stay there and just become aware of the world around you. Become aware of your existence. Perhaps touch something. I mean, really touch it. You know, there's like the touching of things that we do in everyday life where we are grabbing things and, oh, I got to grab my keys. Oh, I got to grab my wallet. Oh, I got I to gotta run down here. I got to grab this door handle so that I can go here and etc. But how often do we really touch an object? It's that kind of thing that the true devotee of Sri Krishna would do. Somebody who is able to just sit and be with the world. And in that way, I am an imperfect, because right now, I, I struggle with that personally. I do. And I, I'm not afraid to say that. I'm sometimes very afraid of just sitting and being. I don't know why. I used to be able to do so when I was uh, about three years ago or so. Maybe it's all of the changes that have occurred in my life, and I'm still in a turbulent moment. So yeah, who knows? Maybe I just need to be even more grounded to reach that sense of consciousness again where I really feel completely at peace when I am just sitting being. It's a hard thing. So don't expect to feel good the first time or even the second time or the first hundred times that you sit down and just be. That's really what yoga is, ultimately. It's not some practice of uh, breathing exercises and, and, pose, and body poses. It is a way of understanding everything so that you can just be within it. Now, it's way more complex than that, obviously, but I think that that's part of the heart of it. The idea that if you can simply be with the world in that moment, to be present and to reach out and understand the world around you in that way that you are not looking to prescribe your own sense of beliefs on it, or to fulfill your own material pleasures, I think that that allows you to attain something close to what people would call enlightenment, right? I don't really like the term enlightenment because I've experienced moments where I feel complete bliss, as people will say enlightenment is. I've experienced moments where I don't feel like time exists. I think all of us have at one point or another. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, time flies when you're having fun. No, I mean like, I've sat in places at times, especially in the natural world, and I've watched the world turn, aware of the fact that time is moving, but also aware of the fact that the time doesn't move, if that makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, take some time to think about it when you're sitting, being, after this podcast. 53. When your mind is no longer disturbed by the flowery language of the Vedas, and when it remains fixed in the trance of self-realization, then you will have attained the divine consciousness. 54. Arjuna said, What are the symptoms of one whose consciousness is thus merged in transcendence? How does he speak and what is his language? How does he sit and how does he walk? 55. The Supreme Personality of Godhead said, O oh, Bartha, when a man gives up all varieties of sense, desire which arise of invention, and when his mind finds satisfaction in the self alone, then he is said to be in pure transcendental consciousness. 56. One who is not disturbed in spite of the threefold miseries, who is not elated when there is happiness, and who is free from attachment, fear, and anger, is called a sage of steady mind. Purport. 
The word Mooney means one who can agitate his mind in a various way for mental speculation without coming to a factual conclusion. This is kind of funny because this is quite literally what I'm doing. It is said that every Mooney has a different angle of vision, and unless one Mooney is different in view from another, he cannot be called a Mooney in the strict sense of the term. But a Sathita di Mooney, the kind mentioned herein by the Lord, is different from an ordinary Mooney. The Sathita di Mooney is always in Krishna consciousness, for he has finished all his business with creative speculation. He is called Prasanta Nesesha Menarathantaram, or one who has surpassed the stage of mental speculations and has come to the conclusion that Lord Sri Krishna, Vasudeva, is everything. He is called the Muni fixed in mind. Such a fully Krishna-conscious person is not at all disturbed by the onslaughts of the threefold miseries, those due to nature, to other beings, and to the frailties of one's own body. Such a Muni accepts all miseries as the mercy of the Lord, thinking himself only worthy of more trouble due to his past misdeeds, and sees that his miseries by the grace of the Lord are minimized to the lowest. Similarly, when he is happy, he gives credit to the Lord, thinking himself unworthy of that happiness. He realizes that it is due only to the Lord's grace that he is in such a comfortable condition, and thus able to render better service to the Lord. And for the service of the Lord, he is always daring and active and is not influenced by attachment or detachment. Attachment means accepting things for one's own sense gratification, and detachment is the absence of such sensual attachment. But one fixed in Krishna consciousness has neither attachment nor detachment because his life is dedicated in the service of the Lord. Consequently, he is not at all angry even when his attempts are unsuccessful. A Krishna conscious person is always steady in his determination. I think that uh, I like this idea of Krishna consciousness, but I don't like the idea that it requires a lack of creative speculation. To me, it is far more of worth to be a Muni than a Sathita Dimuni, as is described here. I believe that people should constantly be unwilling to come to a single conclusion, because by doing so, we are thus refusing the non-dual nature of the world. However, comma, what is suggested here is not a direct line because of the complexity of Sri Krishna, because Sri Krishna is not exactly God per se. Krishna is everything, everyone, the causer of causes, the being of beings. And in that way, by accepting Sri Krishna, and concluding that, you're not necessarily giving up creative speculation in any other sense of the word, because creative speculation is, by nature, part of Sri Krishna. It is part of the causes, right? Because if we can speculate about something and cause other people to speculate about it, it causes more things to happen. It's actually what I'm doing right now. I am speculating about the nature of Krishna, and by doing so, I am making you question this as well. And so by doing, you will gain, in a way, Krishna consciousness. Not directly, but you will slowly come to realize that, well, you are affected by this thing, and it is inescapable, in a way. To accept it is not necessarily to accept a god, but to accept a reality of life the reality that our actions are caused by things and that 
we cause actions, and that we cannot do anything about that, except for think about our, the things that we did in the past that had effects on people. I certainly think of ways that I w did misdeeds in my, in my youth. I, fairly minor stuff, but at moments I was arrogant. That arrogance of mine, I came to realize, was painful and uh, separated me from people. And so I decided to, I don't know, not be arrogant. <laughs> I, I don't know how I did that. I don't think I could ever quite explain how anyone changes at all. It's a very confusing process. We should all seek to be Muni. Even if we have accepted Krishna and the, these, all of these ideas, we should seek to continue this creative speculation. 57. He who is without affection either for good or evil is firmly fixed in perfect knowledge. Purport. There is always some upheaval in the material world which may be good or evil. One who is not agitated by such material upheavals, who is without affection for good or evil, is to be understood as fixed in Krishna consciousness. As long as one is in the material world, there is always the possibility of good and evil because this world is full of duality, or rather this world is full of non-duality, actually. But one who is fixed in Krishna consciousness is not affected by good and evil because he is simply concerned with Krishna, who is all good absolute. Hmm, then what is all evil absolute? Is not Krishna also all evil? Is not the causer of causes the one that causes evil? Hmm, that's a bit of an odd idea. Such consciousness in Krishna situates one in a perfect transcendental position called technically samadhi. Yeah, I, I feel like this uh, is missing something. Maybe this is explained further later on. But I feel like this is lacking that understanding that our, our world not only is made of good and evil, but that the spiritual is full of good and evil as well. There are some really evil spiritual ideas, and we'll talk about those when we get to them. We actually haven't run into that many of them today, uh, which is very nice. I, I like not having to think about things that, that pain me. 58. One who is able to withdraw his senses from sense objects as the tortoise draws his limbs within the shell, is to be understood as truly situated in knowledge. 59. The embodied soul may be restricted from sense enjoyment, though the taste for sense objects remains. But, ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. 60. The senses are so strong and impetuous O Arjuna, that they forcibly carry away the mind even of a man of discrimination who is endeavoring to control them. 61. One who restrains his senses and fixes his consciousness upon me is known as a man of steady intelligence. 62. While contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops attachment for them, and from such attachment lust develops, and from lust anger arises. Purport. One who is not Krishna conscious is subjected to material desires while contemplating the objects of senses. The senses require real engagements, and if they are not engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Lord, they will certainly seek engagement in the service of materialism. In the material world, everyone, including Lord Shiva and Lord Brahma, to say nothing of other demigods in the heavenly planets, is subjected to the influence of sense objects. 
And the only method to get out of this puzzle of material existence is to become Krishna conscious. Lord Shiva once was deep in meditation, but when the beautiful maiden Parvati agitated him for sense pleasure, he agreed to the proposal, and as a result, Kartikeya was born. When Hari Dasa Takura was a young devotee of the Lord, he was similarly allured by the incarnation of Maya Devi. But Hari Dasa easily passed the test because of his unalloyed devotion to Lord Krishna. A sincere devotee of the Lord learns to hate all material sense enjoyment due to his higher taste for spiritual enjoyment in the association of the Lord. That is the secret of success. One who is not, therefore, in Krishna consciousness, however powerful he may be in controlling the senses by artificial repression, is sure ultimately to fall, for the slightest thought of sense pleasure will drive him to gratify his desires. So I somewhat disagree with this. I think that there is a truth to the uh, experience of sense pleasure. I think that uh, we shouldn't limit ourselves from experiencing sense pleasure. I do think, however, that uh, perhaps we shouldn't just do so without thinking. This is going to, you'll see, become a consistent thing when I talk about spirituality, the idea of uh, everything except moderation. Do it in moderation. Moderation is what we really need. I think it's impossible to get away from sense pleasures anyways. I mean, quite literally, touching something is a form of sense pleasure. And because our bodies are in constant contact with objects other than, well, actually, yeah, even when you jump in the air, you're surrounded by air molecules. And so we cannot get away from sense perception, sense attachment. And because of that, we should realize the sacredness of that the ability of us to find truth, power, and the sacred within the mundane. Bhagavad Gita skips over that, and that's because it's in opposition to some of these more Buddhist influences of the Maya Deva, as, as we see here uh, being referred to quite negatively. Now, I'm not going to side with either one. I just personally feel that I have found a lot of meaning from sense perception and my experiences of material pleasures. And to refuse myself that would to be refuse a knowledge to myself. And how would one learn without the knowledge of everything accessible? So in that way, we should not prevent ourselves, but we should not allow ourselves to be overtaken by the, uh, the use of sense perception. 63. From anger, delusion rises, and from delusion, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost, and when intelligence is lost, one falls down again into the material pool. And I do have to ask here, what's so bad about the material? Can't we be both? Why can't we enjoy both the spiritual and the material? 64. One who can control his senses by regulated principles and who is free from attachment and aversion can obtain the mercy of God. Odd use of the term God there. It is Sri Krishna speaking, uh, speaking here, so uh, God might be a translated word that does not have a precise meaning, as oftentimes the, the word God is very specific in languages where it can mean something by the fact that it is oftentimes a collection of other words or sometimes an unpronounceable word. So who knows what that term God is actually referring to there. Purport.
it is already explained that one may externally control the senses by some artificial process, but unless the senses are engaged in the transcendental service of the Lord, there is every chance of a fall. Although the person in full Krishna consciousness may apparently be on the sensual plane, actually, because of his being Krishna conscious, he has no attachment to or detachment from such sensual activities. Oh, you know, maybe, maybe my, my critique is, is solved here because both having no attachment nor detachment suggests this, this moderation that I was saying. Eh, all right, I'll meet you halfway there, Bhagavad Gita. The Krishna conscious person is concerned only with the satisfaction of Krishna and nothing else. Therefore, he is transcendental to all attachment or detachment. If Krishna wants, the devotee can do anything which is ordinarily undesirable. And if Krishna does not want, he will not do anything he would have ordinarily done for his own satisfaction. Therefore, to act or not to act is within his control because he acts only under the dictation of Krishna. This consciousness is the causeless mercy of the Lord, which the devotee can achieve in spite of his being attached to the sensual platform. 65. For one who is situated, the threefold miseries of material life exist no longer. In such a happy state, one's intelligence is steady. 66. One who is not in transcendental consciousness can have neither a controlled mind nor steady intelligence, without which there is no possibility of peace. And how can there be any happiness without peace? Yeah, I agree with that. You gotta have peace to be happy. 67. As a boat on the water is swept away by a strong wind, even so one of the senses in which the mind becomes fixed can carry away a man's intelligence. 68. Therefore, O mighty armed, one whose senses are restrained from their objects is certainly of steady intelligence. 69. What is night for all beings is the time of awakening for the self-controlled, and the time of awakening for all beings is night for the introspective sage. Hmm. So this is actually very similar to a uh, spiritual discussion about certain parts of the Torah in which I believe it is King David who uh, stays up real late and he speaks to Adonai by staying up that late. I think there's some other stuff involved, but it's very important that he stays up when other people are sleeping because that is when he has more access essentially to the spiritual world. There's, there's a lot of rules that allow for that to happen. It has to do with like people's levels of consciousness while they're sleeping are like 160th or something like that. Maybe it's 124th, I can't remember. It's a specific number in the Jewish tradition and it's quite similar to this here, suggesting potentially a connection between the cultures that was made at some point, potentially by the trade routes uh, through Mesopotamia. Purport. There are two classes of intelligent men. The one is intelligent in material activities for sense gratification, and the other is introspective and awake to the cultivation of self-realization. Activities of the introspective sage or thoughtful man are night for persons materially absorbed. Materialistic persons remain asleep during such a night due to their ignorance of self-realization. The introspective sage, however, remains alert in, the in that night of the materialistic men. Such sages feel transcendental pleasure in the gradual advancement of spiritual culture, whereas 
The man in materialistic activities being asleep to self-realization dreams of varieties of sense pleasure, feeling sometimes happy and sometimes distressed in his sleeping condition. The introspective man is always indifferent to materialistic happiness and distress. He goes on with his self-realization activities undisturbed by material reactions. I gotta say, they're kind of calling me out here as someone who's really interested in religion. I'm recording this in the night, even though I've said multiple times that I've been switching up when I'm recording these. I started recording this in the afternoon, uh, this series of podcasts, and uh, this one happened to be at night. So <laughs> I'm looking out the window, I'm like, well, people are probably going to sleep. Uh, I'm noticing other apartment windows are starting to get dark, so it's that time. <laughs> And I gotta say, I would call myself not a sage, but introspective, and uh, I certainly stay up later than most people. Uh, I have sometimes sleep deprivation. Yeah, it goes beyond insomnia a lot of times for me. And, you know, it's something I've struggled with all my life since uh, around eighth grade. And I also don't have dreams very often, uh, barely at all. Um, some of that's because of the sleep deprivation. Sometimes uh, when you crash, you don't have dreams, so... Um, you know, it, it is more complex than all that, and it has to do with biological things. So it could be talking about that in particular. Perhaps at the time, uh, a lot of sages would stay up really late and just not really have dreams. And so they uh, related this to some kind of uh, external Krishna consciousness that they couldn't define particularly, and they didn't have words for these more biological, scientific realities of life. Nonetheless, there is something to be said for the night and the introspective soul. Uh, so many times I've spent long nights speaking to philosophy majors and, and the like, because I love speaking with people. One of my best friends from college, uh, she and I would take these really long walks, sometimes once a week, mostly only like once a month, but uh, we would sometimes be walking all the way to 3 a.m., Sometimes it would be very cold, and we'd, and we'd be shivering, but we would do it, and I can't tell you exactly why we wouldn't go in. I mean, we would go in eventually and sit, but there was something about walking at night that just brought us so much joy, and I will never forget those walks with her. 70. A person who is not disturbed by the incessant flow of desires that enter like rivers into the ocean which is ever being filled, but is always still, can alone achieve peace, and not the man who strives to satisfy such desires. 71. A person who has given up all desires for sense gratification, who lives free from desires, who has given up all sense of proprietorship, and is devoid of false ego, he alone can attain real peace. 72. That is the way of the spiritual and godly life, after attaining which a man is not bewildered. Being so situated, even at the hour of death, one can enter into the kingdom of God. Purport. One can attain Krishna consciousness or divine life at once, within a second, or one may not attain such a state of life even after millions of births. It is only a matter of understanding and accepting the fact. Katvanga Maharaja attained this state of life just a few minutes before his death by surrendering unto Krishna. Nirvana means ending the process of materialistic life. According to Buddhist philosophy, there is only void after this material life. But Bhagavad Gita teaches differently. Actual life begins after the completion of this material life. 
For the gross materialist, it is sufficient to know that one has to end this materialistic way of life. But for persons who are spiritually advanced, there is another life after this materialistic one. Therefore, before ending this life, if one fortunately becomes Krishna conscious, certainly he at once attains the state of Brahma Nirvana. There is no difference between the kingdom of God and the devotional service of the Lord. Since both of them are on the absolute plane, to be engaged in the transcendental loving service to the Lord is to have attained the spiritual kingdom. In the material world, there are activities of Krishna consciousness. Therefore, attainment of Krishna consciousness, even during this life, is immediate attainment of Brahman, and one who is situated in Krishna consciousness has certainly already entered into the kingdom of God. Srila Bhakti Navoda Thakura has summarized this second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita as being the contents for the whole text. In Bhagavad Gita, the subject matters are Karma Yoga, Janana Yoga, and Bhakti Yoga. In the second chapter, Karma Yoga and Janana Yoga have been clearly discussed, and a glimpse of Bhakti Yoga has also been given. Thus end the Bhakti Vedanta purports to the second chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita in the matter of its contents. And just to finish off what I have to say about this uh, chapter, I am taken by this last bit because it actually suggests that we could never know if we have actually attained Krishna consciousness. Because how can one know if they have actually uh, are living the real, true life, or the, the afterlife in a way? How does one know? How does one know that there will not be an internal set of Krishna consciousnesses to attain, a series of infinite things to learn? How does one not know that? In that way, I side a little more with the Buddhists in this sense, where I believe that it is important to eventually end at void, for void is that which does not require any more attainment, any more doing. One may simply be. And for it is uh, doing that will oftentimes cause things. And if we can prevent this uh, cycle of cause and effect, we can attain that which is beyond Krishna. And that which is beyond Krishna is void. It is the complete absence of all cause and effect. And it is that which our souls strive for, for we do not want to experience suffering. However, if we want that void in order to end suffering, we may never reach it. For we have not learned that the lack of suffering is not a reward in and of itself. In fact, it is nothing. Both things are nothing. Uh, void is quite literally the absence of everything, the absence of suffering, the absence of enjoyment. And so, in that way, I would define void not as a negative thing that we should be afraid of, but rather as something that we eventually get to, even in our old age. I think void is the state that we reach right before we die. That is defined here as Krishna consciousness uh, in the life of, uh, I've closed the book now, so I, I can't, I'm not going to open it again, but uh, of that one guy who uh, surrendered at the last moment. To me, that surrendering is surrendering to the void, to the idea that maybe we don't need to enjoy anything. Maybe we don't need to suffer. Maybe both are a cycle of each other. Maybe it is through the awareness of enjoyment and pleasure that we gain our understanding of suffering and pain. They are one and the same feeling, connected intrinsically via their uh, linkage. 
And that's not to say that they're a binary, but rather a non-dual spectrum. For have you ever experienced pleasure and pain at the same time? It certainly happens. I'm really excited to continue with Bhagavad Gita. This actually, this second chapter has uh, burgeoned my hopes for this holy text. I'm always scared by the beginning of holy texts, as I was in chapter one, because they often say some really mean things about women, and they say some mean things about people in general. But this chapter had actually a lot of really cool things to say. And so if you're going to read a chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, make it that second chapter uh, where they summarize all of that and give you just a basic primer. Now, of course, uh, there's a lot more going on, and we'll delve into that in following episodes. But remember, each month we'll be covering uh, Bhagavad Gita at the very end as a little treat. Uh, so keep, uh, keep, keep waiting for that, and uh, uh, Chapter 3 will be coming out at the end of June of all times. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't believe that it's been two months already. Time just seems to fly by. And I am so happy that even the few people who do listen to this podcast are listening in. However, you can continue to support the show by listening, of course, as always, and following the show wherever you get your podcasts. And today, instead of talking about stuff in the comments, which are hard to find, I don't even know if uh, Spotify has comments or any of the platforms that I have this on have comments, uh, I will be putting this podcast on YouTube eventually, but... I want to create some nicer cover art. Truly, the cover art for this podcast is a bit of a placeholder because I wanted to commission some nice art uh, from some, some artist. <laughs> I'll contact them at some point. I don't know who I'm going to contact. Yeah, uh, share this podcast with somebody because this podcast has very, uh, a very small viewership, and for the amount of work that I do... Uh, every month to put this together. I'd like to see it have at least a hundred listeners, a hundred people to tune in and uh, join me in trying to understand the world a little better. That's a small goal, you know? So let's try to get this podcast to a hundred listeners. That's, that's, my, that's my big plug. Uh, put, this, put this, I give you full permission if you're listening to post this on Instagram, say, hey, check this out. This was really cool. I really loved this episode. They gave me a lot of new ideas about, about the way this, this text works. I'd never heard about this before. Go to Twitter, go to Reddit, go to all the places that, especially I'm not on. So uh, help me out, you know? If you, if you really are enjoying the work, if you're not enjoying the work, don't help me out. I don't know, whatever. But um, if you really are enjoying it, please do share it. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. And you can also let people know that I have that too if you want to uh, post about some cool new music you found. Uh, if you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com as per the usual. Next episode, we'll be exploring a myth that I have not actually chosen yet. Uh, that's pretty rare for me. In fact... I probably should, uh, tomorrow, uh, look into figuring out what myths I'm going to be doing. So let it be a little bit of a surprise, all right, uh, for, for early June. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, 
please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now for the last word. Today's last word is... Attachment. Attachment.